Bitcoin has accepted farmer places. Bitcoin's adoption is growing rapidly. Things like Nostra are being built, built out that are Bitcoin centric. Um, there's a lot of traction behind Bitcoin that just simply isn't behind other things. Um, so I think that there's a, there's a really good reason to focus on Bitcoin, especially as long as there's hope to improve privacy on Bitcoin. Um, and there definitely is that both on chain through um, application layer privacy, like Q&A was talking about, where wallet developers like Foundation, um, like others can build tools like Samurai Wallet specifically can build tools that can improve the privacy of users of Bitcoin on chain and with worker on Lightning Network to resolve some of the key privacy issues that it has currently and help to make it a, a really powerful privacy tool as well in the future. So I think there's a lot of promise for Bitcoin, even though maybe it's not the most approachable or most usable privacy tool today, there are there's definitely hope for the future there. Welcome to Bitcoin Basics with your hosts, Faris and Gordon. Visit BitcoinBasics.help if you need help buying and securing your Bitcoin. We have a brand new podcast. Visit MyPrivacy.help to subscribe. Did you know you can completely control your personal information without relying on a third party? Farris, Gordon, and industry experts explain how you can reclaim control of your data, your privacy, your life. Visit myprivacy.help. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Basics Podcast. You are here with your host, Ferris and Gordon. We are recording on the 6th of March uh, 2023, the price of Bitcoin is $22,350. That is 4,474 Satoshis per dollar. The block height is 779,624. And Gordon, I'll get you to say something while I look for how much gold Bitcoin buys you these days, because I know that's one you like. Okay. So today we interviewed uh, Seth and Q&A from Foundation. And for anyone who has listened to our show for a while, we did actually interview Q&A a while ago, a couple of years ago, actually, um, uh, more about privacy. And, uh, yeah, these are fun guys, good interview, obviously quite knowledgeable. But, uh, yeah, if you are considering buying a Bitcoin uh, cold storage device, we have interviewed Bitbox uh, in the past. Have a have a look at that. But this is Foundation. This is a cold storage hardware wallet. And so, yeah, really fun, really knowledgeable guys. Um, and uh, yeah, Faris, what did you think? Yeah, I had a lot of fun with this one because I they sent us the um, Passport, which is their cold storage device, which we talk about. So I got to play around with that for a fair chunk. Um, so just to actually ask the uh, manufacturers directly, uh, about it was and developers was really cool so yeah I, I quite enjoyed that yeah so without further ado here's the interview and as usual all the links will be in the show notes they've got links to their telegram channel uh, obviously their website but some other stuff as well including a previous episode so check that out and uh here is the interview with seth and q a from foundation If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, and share so we can find others like yourself. Okay. My turn. We're keeping score, are we? We are. All right. Cool. Okay. Well, welcome everyone to another exciting interview we've got today with uh, Seth and Q&A. And we'll get those guys to introduce themselves in a moment. 
they're both from Foundation. But uh, I was just looking back uh, at when I interviewed Q&A and it was 22nd September 2021. So I was like, ah, it was probably four or five months ago, but uh, there you go, time flies. So I'll link that episode uh, if you guys want to check it out. And we definitely talked about privacy and and Bitcoin issues as well. Um, so without further ado, guys, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate your time. Um, I know it's super boring or whatever, but everyone wants to know, who are you? What are you doing here? Sorry, can I just jump in? Gordon, you say it's super boring every time, presuming our guests have a boring origin story. Maybe Most they do. don't. Most <laughs> do, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. Just I'm only joking. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, guys. Uh, have, Seth, how about we start with you? Yeah, yeah, I can jump in there. Um, my origin story is relatively boring, so I'll fit, fit right into your mold, Gordon. So yeah, there um, you go. Uh, mine's boring as well. Yeah, we, we, most of us come in through a boring way. Um, so my name's Seth. Seth for privacy is kind of the, the pseudonym that I, I use around the space. Um, I've been in Bitcoin since 2018, early 2018, kind of rode that that bull market there. Um, well, rode the bear market afterwards, mostly. Um, but that was my entry into the Bitcoin space. Um, since then, I, I became really passionate about privacy specifically, both within Bitcoin, uh, within other cryptocurrencies like Monero has been a big focus for me, um, but started falling down the rabbit hole of why privacy matters more broadly. Um, and obviously, financial privacy is a, a big part of that. Um, so a lot of my work around Bitcoin has been Bitcoin privacy related um, and doing education around Bitcoin privacy. But uh, it's also much more broad. So I, I have a podcast that I, I host that focuses on um, personal privacy called Opt Out. Uh, I have a blog that I've written on that. Um, and then I've jumped in with Foundation, who I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later today, uh, to be their head of content and helping them to drive content that's focused on self-sovereignty and really digital sovereignty at a broad level, um, which is focusing on reclaiming your data, reclaiming your privacy, uh, reclaiming your financial sovereignty through Bitcoin. Um, and so there's there's a lot that kind of interweaves there. Um, but that's a, a really quick intro for myself. Yeah, and for me, uh, the origins are somewhat similar uh, to, to Seth, where, you know, came in back in the 2017, right at the top of the top of the hype bubble, uh, spent a lot of uh, fiat on on stuff that's not Bitcoin and then uh, had that gracious or, or not so gracious fall from uh, from the, the, the highs um, all the way down through 18 and 19, um, slowly just soaking up as much information as I can. And um, as I was doing that through the various different mediums of YouTube, blog posts, uh, shit posting on Twitter and whatnot, um, kind of found a, a bit more of a love for the more technical aspect of, of Bitcoin and trying to understand the nuts and bolts of how this thing works. Um, and equally, um, much like Seth said as well, uh, took a, a great um, focus on privacy as well. Um, was kind of learning via osmosis of the, the different communities that I was uh, rubbing shoulders with, um, namely like the, the samurai community. Uh, been very good to me in terms of learned a lot from from people who you know both build their tools and and in the community surrounding it, and that shaped a lot of my views on you know Bitcoin and and, and outside the outside world as well. Um, so the difference, the main difference between me and Seth, I guess, is that I'm kind of. Um, Seth's coming at it from a little bit more of a technical standpoint in terms of his background, whereas I'm the guy that uh, 
kind of pokes everybody uh, in their DMs and say, uh, I'm trying to do this in the command line, but I've never used it before. So can you help me with doing this? And Seth smiling there um, because it was literally a couple of days ago where I was uh, slid, slid into his DMs saying, can you help me with this topic? So I kind of learned from bashing my head on the keyboard, but yeah, absolutely not a, a technical guy in terms of my my background and my career. So I kind of um, just... Uh, yeah, bounce my head off the keyboard until it makes sense um, and, and get there eventually. Um, and that's brought me to a place where, you know, I've, I've started to under, understand and been able to start to give back to the communities, um, put together a, a educational website called Bitcoin.guide. Um, and yeah, that uh, luckily landed me the job at Foundation as, uh, as head of uh, customer experience. So I'm um, all of the customer facing sorts of things. So uh, emails, documentation, videos, um, and, you know, in the background sort of shaping our product range along with the rest of the team so that we can make the best sort of products that we can to, to help people self-custody their Bitcoin. Thank you very much for that, guys. And um, I did have a play around with the uh, Passport Batch 2, so we're definitely going to have a talk about that. Um, but before we do, this is something that we find a lot is people, it takes a while for people to get into Bitcoin. It's going to be a good 18 months. And that was with the assistance of Gordon, who's um, an IT whiz. Um, but then once people are comfortable with Bitcoin, and I mean, Bitcoin's always a steep learning curve, we find that we tend to move into these other rabbit holes. So sovereignty and privacy is the latest one that's coming up. And we're getting a lot of our customers, clients asking us about this. Just from your perspective, Seth, thank you, Nate. Why do you think that is? Why is it once we found Bitcoin, we we tend to branch off into, and I like how you put it, self-sovereignty, sovereign individual, Um what is what triggers that from your perspective? I think for me, the the reason that I found that that's common is that really approaching Bitcoin and starting to understand it and starting to grok kind of what it means to have money that's detached from the state, to have money that's censorship resistant, to have money that's self sovereign. It, I mean, it it points you towards why those things matter. And so once you start to care about those things, you ultimately start to care about Bitcoin. And so I think it's kind of a, I don't know if it's chicken before the egg, but it, those things kind of happen simultaneously in that you, you've kind of had your eyes opened to broader issues with society, broader issues with money. And so once you approach Bitcoin, you start to understand that there are broader implications for both uh, better money, how it can affect the world, um, and for why the world is broken currently um and some of the kind of the systemic issues with the world so i think like for me it, it led to the privacy rabbit hole because initially i just approached bitcoin from the perspective of making money and just like many people got into it and thought i could make a few bucks treat it like a penny stock and and that was about it um but once i started to to grok why bitcoin was different why it was different than all the other cryptocurrencies out there um why it was built from the ground up with these very specific approaches that made it censorship resistant that made it decentralized uh, i started to understand that there was there was value there but that if that was uh kind of co-opted if there was a lack of privacy that the ways that we could use it would be limited um and so that for me is kind of what led into the the privacy rabbit hole both from like the personal privacy perspective and Bitcoin privacy. Um, and I think that that's ultimately similar for other people where they fall down like the, maybe the um, food supply chain rabbit hole. And they start to think about buying beef direct from farmers or things like that. Cause they start to understand that the, the broader problems with society. Yeah, I think uh, just to build on what Seth said, um, I came in for exactly the same reasons, wanted to to make a few 
few pounds um and you know buy myself a nice car you know clearly things have changed since the, since i first got in um but for me one thing i've noticed about the community and, and the people that, that kind of do stick around and at least just scratch the surface just a little bit um those sorts of people that do stick around for any any medium to long term um length of time are generally the more like-minded people and we share the same sort of beliefs and values and are generally speaking very very helpful and willing to uh, help people and give everybody else a leg up that's around them um and by doing so also you know um form a, a a cognizant argument of their views on life so like seth said you know the um getting to know your farmer or getting, going down the privacy rabbit hole are all things that I would never even considered of if I hadn't have got into the Bitcoin space and met the people that I've met through the various different sub-communities that, that there are around Bitcoin um, and the types of people that those generally attract is that they're just, they're willing to, to go um, and explain a complex topic or to show you how to do something in the command line or, you know, equally if you've got... Um, opposing opinions that they'll go toe to toe with you and it may, and help you understand that why they think the way that they do in a um non-confrontational matter and don't get me wrong of course especially on bitcoin twitter there is there's lots of confrontation but generally speaking i'm talking the people who you are who you have real relationships with um are the types of people that you kind of want to stick around and as the old saying goes, you know, you're the sum of the five people that you spend the most time with. And I think you can expand that slightly more broadly, uh, you know, and the people that you speak to daily online or the, the people that you speak to on Telegram or anything like that. And um, you just start to um, think in similar ways and share ideas. And one thing just leads to the next. And then it turns into a never ending rabbit hole. And you, the next minute you're up on YouTube at 2 a.m. looking at uh, the intricacies of the beef market or something strange like that. Oh, that's why I love it because there's just multiple rabbit holes. You know, once you finish one rabbit hole, no, there's another one. There's something else that I've got to look into. Um, so rabbit hole minimalization is what I'm all about now. I'm like, I'll just have a little bit of a look into that rabbit hole and see if I want to spend the next six months there. Um, you mentioned privacy a lot and quick plug. Uh, we talk about privacy all the time in Bitcoin Basics podcast, but um, we've also started a new podcast about privacy and self-hosting and all that kind of good stuff as well. Um, why, why, I mean, let's not go over why privacy is important, but why is privacy important? Seth, you sort of mentioned it sort of, sort of briefly, um, but why is privacy so important with Bitcoin? Like that's uh, from a newbie's point of view, they're like, well, isn't, Bitcoin private, there's like two transactions and maybe you could sort of uh, then talk about foundation and how you guys are focused on privacy. Yeah, I think um, taking it back to, I hate to be that guy that kind of quotes the white paper because uh, that that type of thing does have its its place. But, uh, but Bitcoin from its origins was designed to be peer-to-peer electronic cash. That's what's quoted in the white paper and that people like to wax lyrical about. Um, but there's a lot to be said for, for kind of living and dying by those words, so to speak. Um, uh, we can only sort of truly realize the potential of actual peer-to-peer digital cash um, that has all of the properties that Bitcoin has. And I'm sure you've gone over loads of these on previous podcasts um, is by maintaining the pseudonymity of who owns what Bitcoin. Um, as soon as we start to tie people's um, names and addresses and personal details to various stacks of Bitcoin or Bitcoin addresses, um, we 
instantly weaken or the various properties that that Bitcoin has in terms of censorship resistance, um, you know, being more difficult to confiscate. Um, As soon as, you know, the people that want to attack the Bitcoin network have um, a a physical person or location to go and attack, that's immediately a a huge chink in the armor. So by maintaining your privacy when interacting with Bitcoin, be that directly with the network in how you transact or in terms of, you know, like me being a pseudonym on Twitter is all um, gained to add some weight to all of the properties that Bitcoin has. Um, and that is what makes it great, in my personal opinion. Um, we can leverage that and, and sort of gain all of those great properties or strengthen them by by maintaining our privacy or, or our pseudonymity. But yeah. th- this is a completely trolling question, and I promise I've never asked this before on a podcast. Uh, why, why Bitcoin? Why not use a privacy coin like Monero? Ooh, that's a good one. I can see Seth smiling there, thinking, "What's he going to come up with now?" Um, honestly, uh, I think Bitcoin. There's a lot to be said for Bitcoin having the Lindy effect. Um, you know, Bitcoin's the the long established player in the game. It's got that brand. Um, the the it's, a, it's almost a household name at this stage and people know it and they understand it. Um, is Bitcoin's uh, privacy perfect? No, absolutely not. You'll get much better base layer or default privacy from other coins, especially like Monero. Um, but I think Bitcoin poses the best chance that we have to be able to um, create the next type of world money. Um, Bitcoin makes some calculated trade-offs between sort of verifiability um, and one of the flip sides of that is, you know, significantly weaken privacy if you use it incorrectly. Um, and I think there's a fine balance to be struck between those trade-offs and Bitcoin's clearly aired on the verifiability one, which I think is super, super important. Um, and that's not to say that you can't verify other cryptocurrencies. Um, but I do think, you know, something that we've seen in the, especially in the last two to three years is that, um, the ossification of privacy techniques, um, at the base protocol level and you can see um, more wallet developers and applications stepping up to the fourth now to be able to build on top of that you know there's been it's been recognized that there's um a shortcoming uh, in bitcoin's privacy and wallet application developers and framework developers are stepping up now to to try and fill that gap and to make bitcoin um as well-rounded and easily verifiable as we all know it is but without the gaping holes in its privacy yeah, the I mean, uh, I'll definitely add on to that. So, I mean, for people who don't know me, my background is in Monero. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time digging into Monero, talking about it, um, helping to build things on top of it, contribute to it. And so I'm a, I'm a big fan of Monero and, and still really believe that it's a powerful tool for freedom. Um, but there is a reason why I work for a, a Bitcoin-centric company um, and I'm not working full-time on Monero. And, and that is ultimately that I do think that Bitcoin propose or poses the best opportunity for us to reset to gain back control and to gain back self-sovereignty mostly because of network effects because of adoption that's happening with bitcoin um, above something like monero i mean monero is definitely superior from a an, an ease of use uh approach when you're talking about privacy um it's definitely superior from a just pure privacy perspective than bitcoin but Bitcoin has accepted far more places. Bitcoin's adoption is growing rapidly. Things like Nostr are being built out that are Bitcoin-centric. Um, there's a lot of traction behind Bitcoin that just simply isn't behind other things. Um, so I think that there's a there's a really good reason to focus on Bitcoin, especially as long as there's hope to improve privacy on Bitcoin. Um, and there definitely is that both 
on chain through um, application layer privacy, like you and I was talking about, where wallet developers like Foundation, um, like others, can build tools like Samurai Wallet specifically can build tools that can improve the privacy of users of Bitcoin on chain. And with Worker on Lightning Network to resolve some of the key privacy issues that it has currently and help to make it a, a really powerful privacy tool as well in the future. So I think there's a lot of promise for Bitcoin, even though maybe it's not the most approachable or most usable privacy tool today. There are There's definitely hope for the future there. So for someone just getting into Bitcoin, and this is the niche for our show, Bitcoin Basics, um, why foundation and why Passport? I'll put you on the spot if you don't mind. Yeah, I can I can kind of quickly jump into that and I'll, I'll let Q&A chime in. But the big thing for us is that we are really targeting the the new entrant into Bitcoin. I mean, the, the things that we're building, we're trying not to keep this, this focus that's happened in the Bitcoin space where we build for the hardcore user. Uh, and then we just tell the noob, oh, you're just going to have to learn how to use the hardcore, hardcore thing. And we want to build some... Call cuts. That- <laughs> <laughs> we want to build something that's approachable, that's familiar, that's beautiful, that's easy to use so that that barrier to entry of actually using Bitcoin the right way, which is holding your own keys, which is gaining privacy from it, is something that's uh, much more accessible to more people. I mean, ultimately, we want this thing to be as useful as possible to as many people as possible. I hope that's what Bitcoiners want. Um, and so if we get stuck in this paradigm of we're serving sysadmins and hardcore techies and CLI people, we lose people along the way and they'll either give up and bail on Bitcoin or they'll adopt custodial solutions instead because custodial solutions will always be easier than self-custodying your funds. But we're doing as much as we can to make it as easy as possible to hold your own keys to actually hold your own Bitcoin, to use your own Bitcoin, not just lock it away in a vault, but actually be able to use it day to day as you see fit. Um, and we're, we're building more and more tools around that, both from cold storage perspective and with things we're building out for our, our hot wallet as well. Yeah. I just to add to that, I like to kind of distill this down is that we we're aiming to be sort of, I guess, Apple without all the walled gardens. Um, you know, Apple's got a lot of faults, um, but one thing that we pride ourselves on is um, being super, super critical of uh, design uh, decisions. We let, we help, sorry, we um, put design at the forefront of, of a lot of our decisions. And, you know, we spend a lot, a lot of time um, both on the hardware and at the application layer to, to agonize over decisions on, you know, sculpting the user journey um to make it as simple as possible because you know as we all know on this call there's there's hundreds of uh different bits of jargon and technology and terminology within a bitcoin space that you know once you've been here for six months you know the term address or the term uh psbt or something like that is, is you know is is commonplace but when you're first entering the space stuff like that is really quite um can be quite off-putting um so we, we want to sort of sculpt our user experience to shield the user whilst um from these sort of bits of jargon and bits of terminology or you know horrible bits of ux or you know trying to any any sort of music confusing um flows or processes we want just want to make it super simple whilst making beautiful hardware um and another thing that's key for us is making sure that we do everything um as open as and as interoperable as possible so all of our hardware um and all of our software is completely open source so anybody can go and um 
you know, download it themselves, build it themselves, build a company around it, sell it themselves. As long as they, they, what they do is open source, go for it. They can do what they like. Um, and we also make sure that we're, we are compatible with, uh, as many of the other, uh, wallet software, um, uh, on the market today. So basically if there's a, if there's a, a wallet out there that works with hardware wallets, you can bet your bottom dollar that uh, Passport will be compatible with it. So, um, yeah, we we want to make sure that, you know, once you buy a device from us, you're not kind of locked into any wall gardens, but you've got a, a really, really good default um, flow and pattern of usage that we've sculpted, you know, agonizingly to make sure that you have the easiest time possible, whilst also affording more advanced users that do want to go and mix directly to cold storage with Sparrow Wallet or something like that. They have the tools to be able to to do that as well. So we want to, we do want to cater to, to everybody. But yeah, design and ease of use is kind of top of the top uh, priority for us. Yeah, I want to jump in there. Um sorry, one. So yeah. Um, I've been playing around with the Passport Batch 2. I'll just put it up here. Um, obviously, we'll link for everyone to have a look. But this reminds me of my first Nokia. And this is obviously unlike any other cold storage device on the market. So just tell us from your perspective, design, what were you aiming for? Um, why something like this? I've got my own opinions, but yeah, I'd like to hear from you first. Yeah, so... Um... Zach, our CEO, um, is, is a closet Apple fanboy, um, uh, which is where we get a lot of our, uh, design or, or heavy focus on design from. Um, but in terms of the, 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 the um, implications for the batch two device, um, yeah, we, we wanted something that was, that felt familiar. Um, you know, you, you use the Nokia analogy there. So, you know, it is, for anybody that's seen it, it does look like an, an older Nokia phone, maybe with a bit of, um, we like to call it digital deco. It's a, a take on uh, the art deco um, sort of style. Um, so we tried to make it look familiar, but also have a bit of difference from the rest of the market. So again, not here to bash competitors. competitors. I'm not going to name any names, but most of the uh, other options on the market either look like a USB stick or you know, or some similar device. Um, so we wanted to make a device that just uh, looks a little bit different that stokes the conversation that feels really good in the hand and you know we genuinely believe that you just don't get that anywhere else so we do, we don't we're, we're firm believers that it doesn't have to be you know a boring piece of hardware you know obviously security is absolutely paramount when you're going your bitcoin but that doesn't mean that it has to look like shit either so that was my uh softball question to you guys <laughs> um we we tell our customers listeners on the show they're sick of us hearing you know get your coins off an exchange get into a hardware wallet cold storage device da, da, da. okay here's your softball question we'll get into harder stuff later uh why foundation everyone knows about trezor and ledger and um uh you, you just mentioned about the user design and the user interface maybe you could go lip a little bit more into that but yeah why, why shouldn't someone today just go out and buy a Ledger or a Trezor or a Bitcoin only Bitbox uh, cold card. I can I can jump in there and and kind of expand on what we've been we've been chatting about. Um, I think some of the big differentiators are obviously we talked about design. It, it's a it's a pretty a familiar device, um, but privacy and open source are two of the other key ones. I think when you look at something like Ledger, which is obviously the most well known, the the largest name in the the hardware wallet space. Um, they are a closed source hardware, closed source software design. So no one but Ledger knows 
what actually happens on the hardware wallet. No one knows what happens with their software behind the scenes. Um, obviously, there haven't been any big issues with that so far, but that's not to say that there's huge security vulnerabilities or that they do something malicious in the future or that they're pressured to do something malicious. We couldn't see it. We can't verify it. We can't actually build their software. Um, so you're placing a lot of trust in Ledger at that point. Um, when you look at something like Trezor, while they're open source software and hardware, which is fantastic, we love to see that. Um, they do have a, a lack of a secure element on their device. Um, I don't know how deep into the weeds we want to get with secure elements, but essentially what a secure element is, is it's a, a specifically designed chip that is built to protect info. And when, when we use it, we use it to protect Bitcoin keys, to protect uh, that core information, your seed on the device in a way that even if someone got your passport, if they ran by, they grabbed your passport and they ran off with it, they could not recover your Bitcoin keys from this device. Um, there are some very, very sophisticated attacks that require like 500000 to a million dollars in a uh, year and that require expertise in lasers and are high risk. There's, there's, there's like a very, very rare uh, potential one. But outside of that, no one could get your keys off this device. Trezor, on the other hand, there are known exploits for Trezor devices because they don't have the secure element if you don't use a secure passphrase on the device, it's relatively trivial for someone to be able to get the keys off of it if they're able to actually get custody of your device. Um, the other like uh, Bitcoin-specific ones, like, for instance, Cold Card, it does have secure elements. It is, has two on their latest model. Um, and so they have a, a very similar approach to us. I mean, we, we really appreciate the Cold Card security model. We have a very similar one ourselves. Um but with cold card, I think the the key things I would say are the the ease of use is not there. It's built by a power user for power users, um, which can be fine for some users, but it makes it much more difficult to actually use on a day to day basis to onboard new users too. Um, and unfortunately, they've chosen not to be open source anymore and go source verifiable instead. Um, so while that does still mean that people can view the code and can try to audit the code. No one's going to be building on top of it because they they can't um, based on the, the rules that they've set forward. So there's going to be less eyes on it. So less security through uh, review by people building on top of it. I think it's a really quick summary, um, but a lot of it really does come down to simplifying the experience for you while giving you optionality. So if you want a really simple, really straightforward approach, you can use our mobile app Envoy with your passport use that to send and receive Bitcoin. It's going to be very easy to to approach, very easy to onboard people to. But as you grow in your Bitcoin knowledge, as you grow in your expertise, as you grow in understanding the different things you can do within Bitcoin, we also have power user features like uh, using Whirlpool within Sparrow Wallet to, to mix funds directly to your passport without having to have your passport on you or anything like that. Um, so we really can grow with you, but make that experience as approachable as possible while also prioritizing being free and open source software and hardware being verifiable, um, assembled in the USA and really caring deeply about, about your privacy as a user as well. So I'll jump in. So yeah, one thing you guys mentioned, Oh, sorry, Q and A, did you want to add to that? No, no, I was, um, clutching at straws. I was just going to say Seth nailed it. I've got nothing there to add. (laughs) Excellent. Um, no, I wanted to say, yeah, as far as what you guys were mentioning before, someone said conversation starters. So I've reviewed several different um, cold storage devices. And when you show them the people, like you said, it looks like a USB stick. It's like, okay, this thing was a huge conversation starter. People look at that, they go, wow, that's so cool. And it really did um, 
help people appreciate not just the passport itself, but um, Bitcoin. Um, because one of the issues that we have, and this is more with anyone born before 1980 or before 1990, we go, oh, Bitcoin's digital, it's nowhere. And even though this is, a, excuse me, this is the same principle as any other cold storage device, it's the fact that, like you say, it's familiar. They can hold it in their hands. I think, okay, well, on my phone, I've got all my banking there. I've got everything. This is a phone for Bitcoin. Um, I think you really nailed it with that for helping new people just get their head around the fact that what is Bitcoin and how do I manage it? How do I control it? What are private keys? This really, I saw just people, their eyes light up going, oh, that thing's really cool. Whereas I never really did get that with any other um, cold storage devices. So, so kudos for, for that. Um, now, Gordon, I do want to ask some, I've been playing around with this. I do have some technical questions to ask. Was there anything, Gordon, you wanted to say before I kind of go down that, that end? No, no, go down that end. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, obviously everyone's got competitors. We've got competitors. These guys have got competitors. Um I think the software question was really well answered by Seth. Uh, we talk about open source a lot on the show. We actually covered uh, when uh, Cold Card actually sort of went away from open, not totally pseudo open source, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's super important to use something that is open source, that is verifiable. So a lot of these hardware wallet manufacturers, it's completely out. So uh, if you guys have no idea what I'll talk about, I'll link to the episode that we talked about open source, the importance of it. Um, uh, well, well, I can't remember what I was going to say first, but um, I was going to ask Seth about Monero, but that's okay. You go. Um, yeah, so with the passport, um, one thing I really appreciate is the SD card that you guys have. I think the only other person doing an SD card or only our business is um, CryptoShift with their Bitbox. So with that, um, when you update your passport... Do you have to have the SD card in there or is it one of those things where it's intermittently you can just put the SD card back in? Like, can you just take the SD card out and that's like a deep cold storage device or whenever you update your passport, should you put the SD card back in? Yeah, I can take that one. So to be able to pass the the new firmware, uh, which is, you know, for the, for the layman's out there, it's just like an update to the software that runs on Passport itself. To be able to uh, pass that um, information uh, across the Passport from, say, your phone or your computer, depending on where that you want to download it from, um, we need, a, 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 you know, a vehicle for that. And we use the SD card, which slots uh, neatly into the top of the device. Mm-hmm. Um, that only needs to be inserted for the 30 seconds it takes to run the firmware update. If you never want to use the, the SD card again after that, yep, take it out, burn it, put it in a bin, put it in a drawer, whatever you want to do with it. Um, passport's not reliant on that whatsoever. Um, unless, of course, the only caveat to that would be if you choose to uh, use the SD card for signing transactions and you didn't want to use the, the QR code option. Um, but yeah, otherwise, outside of that, then yeah, you can, that could be the only time that you want to use the SD card. So can you actually elaborate on it? Because I know uh, in the videos, by the way, that come with setting up the device, is that you queuing in at set those videos? Because they're, they're really good. It, it is me. Yeah, thank okay. you for that. Yeah, that's all me. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I've seen videos, I've done several myself, and they're hard to do. And you, you I was impressed with them. And uh, I'm presuming by the accent of voice it was you. But yeah, they're, they're quite impressive. Um, yeah, that was the only issue I had with this. So I'll talk about all the good stuff in that. I do like the buttons on this. I do like the fact you're not toggling with cables. For noobs, I think they'll really appreciate this because um, a lot of the um, core storage devices is if you have zero dexterity and fat fingers like me, you can struggle with these things. 
This one was really cool. Um, the fact that you're just holding your hand with your thumbs, very, very handy. The only issue I had was sending from the device where it just, when I had to point the QR code on here at my laptop, I think maybe I was just in a overly lit room, but it just was not picking that up. And I did see that on the videos, it says you can bypass that and use the SD card. I couldn't find how to do that though. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Before I go into the transactional piece, I just misspoke earlier about the SD card. There is one other way in which you can use the SD card, and that's for um, the encrypted backup optional feature that we use. Um, so if you didn't want to manually um, only manage your your 12 or 24 seed words, we, we offer you another way mm-hmm. to be able to back the device up, which is on the uh, micro SD card, um, which basically just puts a small file on there with your seed words, and it encrypts it with a 20-digit passcode. Again, that's completely optional, but um, for users that want to take that path, then we the device will guide you down that as well. Um, to your point around the um, the transactions, yeah, so with the um, QR code signing, um, this is uh, our sort of favoured method with the device as to how we uh, both read transactional data from um, a wallet software. So that could be on your computer. It could be on your phone, depending on how you choose to use it. Um, Passport's got a camera on there and it will scan the the information in the form of animated QR codes. Um, unfortunately, with animated QR codes, you know, that screen is being shown in you know, any number of different uh, backdrop settings. So there could be glare on the screen. It could be a dim screen. I know some people have struggled before now because they have these privacy shields on their screens, which kind of uh, alter the light slightly. And the screen could be too dim. Um, but what we have done in a very recent update is made a, a big quality of life improvement to um, the ability of the camera scanning on Passport. So we've refactored the, the QR code library uh, that's in the software there to improve the, to kind of account for all of these different variables that we can have when we're displaying QR codes and trying to read them off these very various different type screens with different resolutions and whatnot. So uh, we've done um some huge improvements on that in the latest firmware update to be able to uh, improve that quality of life. So that versus the original software that shipped with the device is, um, is a big, big quality of life improvement. The only other quick caveat I'd add is just that I, I think you mentioned too, that reading it back from the passport screen to your uh, laptop was hard. Unfortunately, laptop webcams are just usually really, really bad quality. Um, and so it can be really difficult for whatever software you're using, like Sparrow Wallet or whatever, to actually be able to read that animated QR back. Um, so like usually I use QR codes when I'm on mobile and I'll usually use micro SD when I'm at my desktop. Um, for me, for instance, like I, I use an old phone for my webcam. So mine does actually work very well. If I just turn on autofocus and scan it, it works quite well. But with like with laptop webcams, they're usually really low quality, which could be problematic for that. And that's where that that optionality with being able to just choose the SD card when you go to uh, sign a transaction comes in. And how you actually initiate that will depend on uh, whatever wallet software you're actually using on your, your desktop or, or phone. Um, and on that one, you'll want to write the, the PSBT, the transaction to the SD card. You'll put that into your passport you'll actually go to sign it with whatever the the specific account on Passport you're using there. And then Passport will give you the transaction details, let you see the address amount, all of that to verify it. You hit sign there, and then it will create a, a signed PSBT on your micro SD card, which then you take the micro SD card, pass it back to the computer or, or phone. Um, and then the wallet software can read that, and then you can broadcast that to the network. So that's the the process that happens with micro SD, um, and sometimes that can be better for for laptops and and desktops when the webcam quality just can't handle the the animated QR codes well. 
Okay. No, that definitely makes sense. And I'll, yeah, I did see that option. I haven't figured that out yet, but I'll play around with that. Um, but yeah, other than that, I'm just, I just thought, yeah, for noobs, they would love this because it's just, yeah, one of the big myth busting things or hurdles that we have with Bitcoin. People go, oh, it's all digital. I don't quite understand it. Whereas with this, yeah, just showing it to people how excited they got, they thought, oh, okay, yeah, th- this would help. So yeah. Um, now last question for me, just about technicalities. So. Is a passport something where you say, okay, I've downloaded, you know, some Satoshi's Bitcoin onto this. I can treat this as deep cold storage. I can just lock it away. And then in a couple of years, I can come back and I can just send these Bitcoins somewhere. Um, I'm presuming you'd have to go through some firmware updates before you do that. Is this meant to be treated as deep cold storage or will you have some issues along the way if you try to treat it that way? Or can you just use the SD card as deep cold storage? Yeah, I'd say you can definitely uh, treat this as, as deep cold storage. Um, to be able to do that, yeah, we we have um, probably you know taken it to the extreme in terms of deep cold storage. Let's say you set it up with uh, with Sparrow Wallet or with Spectre Desktop. Um, you you go through those connection flows, um, which Passport's got kind of a custom flow depending on the wallet that you you want to connect with. Um, once you've done that, you can kind of put Passport away and you know lock it in your vault or um, you know wherever you want to keep that and and continue to. Uh, let's say you're, you know, buying some Bitcoin once a month. You can, the wallet software at that point has everything it needs for you to be able to receive Bitcoin for the next one month or 10 years. Um, and you can keep passport locked away. It's only when that you, when you want to come and spend some Bitcoin and you need passport then to come into play and to be able to authorize that transaction to make it, um, valid. Um, that's when you need to dig passport out of its uh, storage place to be able to spend that Bitcoin. Um, if you are going to take it to that extreme and keep it, um, you know, packed away tightly for for long uh, periods of time. Uh, we kind of thought ahead about that, and Passport's got a, a removable battery. So if you pop the white cover off on the back, um, it's got a somewhat. For, again, if you're born pre 1990, you'll probably recognise the battery. Um, funny enough, from an old Nokia phone. Uh, these are standard form factor batteries, and we did that on purpose so that you know if you are one of those people that keeps this device for a long period of time, you don't want to have to you know come back to us and hope that we're still around in 10, 15 years time thinking where am I going to get one of these batteries from these are common batteries you can pick them up from pretty much anywhere on the internet for a couple of a couple of dollars um and again that was completely intentional but again if you are taking it to the extreme where you're um keeping this cold storage and you're intending not to use the device for prolonged periods of time just take the battery out um it's going to be perfectly fine um and then when you want to um put everything back together just pop the battery back in and the device charges from a uh, any USB-C port uh, on the bottom, which is it's power only. Crucially, there's no data ports on there. So even if you wanted to kind of communicate with this device via a computer, you physically can't. It's not possible. So it's charge only. So yeah, pop the battery back in, charge it up, uh, away away you go, and uh, you'll be able to spend your Bitcoin. And you know, even if it's been one month or ten years, and would you still be able to do that without updating latest firmwares? Uh, in theory, yeah, as long as there's been no breaking changes to sort of Bitcoin consensus model and the way that signatures are verified, then yeah, definitely. Uh, okay, would it cool. be advisable to update to the latest firmware? Absolutely, because mm-hmm. obviously, you know, the idea with software updates is that we make incremental improvements uh, with each time. So if you kind of get to one version and stop there, then you're going to be missing out on features and, and improvements in the future. But um, the core functionality of the device in terms of being able to sign transactions um, is built in such a way that, yeah, once you bought the device, you're not, you don't, you shouldn't ever have to mm-hmm. keep up to date with the latest uh, firmware, you know, month after month. 
Okay. Sorry. One last question on usability for me. I'm not monopolizing it. Sorry, Gordon. Um, well, so I really can, can I ask one quick question before you go into that? Because it can't be understated in terms of open source. And that's why we bang the open source drum so much. And Q&A just mentioned that, you know, if, if a foundation goes bankrupt or something happens to them, the wallet's open source. And so, for example, if something happened to Ledger, they went bankrupt, you know, their service stopped working and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, there'd probably be some people who would maybe shift that off to something else, but you're sort of relying on the goodwill of someone to do that. Um, that's why open source is so important. Uh, a company can go completely bankrupt and yet you can still use their wallet software. And so that can't be understated. And Sorry, people can pick up and improve on our firmware. They could, I mean, if, if we went, went bankrupt and ceased to exist, the product could keep improving, could keep growing, could keep up to date with changes in the Bitcoin network, with changes in consensus. That's something that could absolutely continue. And that, and that is a, a key reason why we love being free and open source is that things are not entirely dependent on us for the longevity of your tool to continue working or improving. Great. Sorry, Faris. Stop uh, using okay. a Trezor ledger. Sorry, yes. Trezor is open source ledger. Have we mentioned we're looking for sponsors, Gordon? <laughs> Limiting our <laughs> options. <laughs> no, sorry, one more question. So one feature I really like is the fact that you create a new address every time. Um, I think this is great for noobs getting in. Uh, just again, this is a question for the noobs, is that even though uh, like some people will set up automatic withdrawals, um, even though it's creating a new address, if you have Satoshi's going to that same old address, they're obviously still going to get there, right? It's not like they're going to bounce back. Yeah, yeah. So I can I can kind of quickly uh, mention why we do that as well. Because, like you said, if you if you choose one static address, you you set that and you withdraw that every time from like a an exchange. That's fine. They'll always get there. They'll always get to your account. Um, the problem with that though is that all of those transactions are all easily linked together to the same person. So like if you've, you've done maybe a, maybe a KYC exchange where you've given over your identifying, identifying information and you've given them this one address, they'll know all those funds are there. And then maybe that information is leaked. Someone will know that that person owns this much Bitcoin that all went to the same address. Um, it makes it a lot easier for people to surveil you, even if like, you then went and spent from that one address. Someone could just look it up on a blockchain explorer and see all of the Bitcoin that you own in one place. Um, that's why one of the kind of the basics of Bitcoin privacy is avoiding address reuse. And that means that every time you receive funds, you want to generate a new address. Um, that can be tricky with exchanges because sometimes they don't let you put in a new address every time and you kind of have to use a static one, unfortunately. Um, but what we do is with our software and with most of the software that Passport's compatible with, will generate a new receive address every time you click receive. So even like within, uh, for instance, within Envoy, our mobile app, if you hit receive and you copy the address, maybe send it to a friend, but they never send you Bitcoin on it, we'll never show you that, that address again, just to make sure. Because that that person could then watch that address. They could try to see what Bitcoin you receive in the future. And it could provide, it could uh, be a privacy risk at that point. So we always generate and give you a new address, even if you don't use them just to, just to make sure and protect your privacy. And that definitely is best practice with any wallet that you use. You don't want to reuse those addresses, but if you do, you will receive the funds. It's just a privacy risk. Yeah. And that was a really handy feature. And another one that, well, I think I just want to mention, which I, I quite appreciate it was this, the two options for, um, 
the normal um, withdrawal time or the boost? I thought you guys phrased that really well because that's one of the things in the industry we try to explain. Um, uh, yeah, but that that was and just the two options as well, so three or four. I thought that was that was quite well done from your end, guys. Yeah, I think um, just coming back brings back to the sort of design decisions that we make. You know, we've had a, a lot of pushback on that to say, you know, most of our early adopters are, are, are more in the power user crowd because they like the latest Bitcoin toys. And there was a lot of pushback to that to say, you know, where's the, the fee granularity? I, I want to be able to kind of, uh, push all the buttons and customize every, every single thing. And, um, it's been, you know, a difficult path or a line for us to walk in terms of, um, giving our target, our intended target audience, you know, the newcomers, the, the good defaults where we kind of do right by them without giving them sort of decision fatigue to be able to be like, okay, what the hell does two sat per byte mean? Um, you know, that's a lot of information to try and un- understand. So yeah, we, we, went with the uh, initial option of, you know, you've got standard, this is how long we estimate it's going to take you, or you can boost it and it's going to be there roughly in 10 minutes and it's going to cost you a little bit more. Um, further down the line, yeah, we'll definitely be adding the more advanced features, but they'll be sort of hidden away so that as they don't sort of detract from the ease of use that we've set out for t- to to achieve from day one. Yeah, you, you don't want to try and keep Bitcoin maxis happy. They'll only be happy when the rest of the world is burning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right there. Yeah, a good point, uh, Q&A. The, the tyranny of the default is what they call it, you know. So basically what you set the default or what software, hardware, whatever sets as default is basically what 99% of people are going to use. So I think you you guys are being able to sort of straddle that line between uh, the newbies who aren't going to change the default, what is something that, you know, address you use and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but also give that option for power users, I think is super important. Um now, I'm a guy who travels quite a lot and I go through airport security and all that kind of stuff quite often. So, you know, in my mind, I'm always thinking about how do I, how do I get my Bitcoins, you know, uh, around and hardware devices, all that kind of stuff. Have you personally or heard of stories about airport security and foundation devices? What the hell is this? Uh, is it a burner phone for terrorist use? Um, have you guys heard any stories? Yeah, so me personally, I've took my passport on um, probably three, maybe four flights now, o- always in hand luggage, uh, never in the check baggage. Uh, I never had a single question asked. The only anecdote that I do have is somebody in our Telegram group um, ages ago when, when we first started shipping batch two devices, he mentioned that his was in his carry-on um, and the, the border agent just pulled it out and said, what's this? Is it a phone? The, our customer just said yes and then that was it they put it back in his bag and he walked off that's the only anecdote i've got i've never heard anything on the contrary of term of devices being confiscated or any more questions being asked um i don't know about you seth i know you you traveled a bit as well yeah i've, I've taken mine a few times internationally and I've, I've never even been asked a question or had a second look on it again only in checked baggage i mean only in in hand, hand luggage not checked baggage uh, definitely want to keep it on your person um, but I have heard one other story of somebody going through TSA and having it looked at and the person again, just asking like, Oh, is this like an old Nokia? Like, what is this? And yeah, just went along with it. Didn't, didn't bother explaining that it was a Bitcoin device and they just handed it back and moved on. So I, again, I've, I've also never heard of anybody having it confiscated or having like extended questioning or anything like that. And I think that's one of the benefits of making it look like just regular old familiar cell phone, uh, rather than some strange device. Oh, that's super yeah, cool. And that's my note. Sorry, no, you go. Go. 
I was just going to say, I even in- intentionally, when I went to Riga for Baltic Honey Badger last year, left uh, mine in the box to see if they, you know, thought, oh, it's in a box. Is this a, a new device? Let's ask some questions. And again, still got nothing. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, as, as I said before, I've sort of traveled up. But uh, yeah, I've had to, in the past, I've had to, you know, okay, I've, I've sinned, I've had a ledger, I've had a treasure, I've had all the hardware wallets, but I've usually had to hide it amongst my other USBs. So I have three or four USBs and I sort of put my ledger amongst the USBs. And the only one time I've been checked is by customs. And they kind of looked at this USB like, what is, I'm like, it's a USB. Okay. So yeah. Um, Obfuscation is always good in security, making it look mundane. Sorry guys, one more just usability technical question here. Um, if you lose the SD card that comes with a passport, can you just get any regular SD card and backup as a new backup? Yep, any uh, SD card below 32 gigabytes in size, uh, micro SD card be, be more specific, will work. Um, if you do buy one, some of them uh, occasionally are formatted in a, a weird format. If Passport doesn't recognize it, um, within the settings menu, you can actually format the SD card into a format that it, it knows and recognizes, and then you'll be you'll be fine to use the, that in the device uh, forever forward then. Yeah, the only call-out is the the one that we ship specifically is an industrial-grade one, and the reasoning for that is that it uh, has a lot higher longevity for how many reads and writes it can endure and for just how, how well it will hold up over time. Um, so that doesn't necessarily matter, especially if you're not using the encrypted backups. That doesn't matter at all because you don't have anything on there that you you need to save. But if you do get like a really cheap SD card, don't rely on it only for uh, like backing up your funds because um, they, they can just degrade over time. Even if they're not being used, they can degrade over time. Um, so quality is important if you want to store the encrypted backups long term. But otherwise, yeah, everything the Q&A said. And can you use two at the same time if you want to do that extra security? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you could have one just for passing transactional data, and then you could have, let's take it to the screen, you could have 10 uh, encrypted backups on 10 different SD cards in 10 different locations, all protected by the same password. So if nine of your friend's houses burn down overnight on exactly the same night, then you've still got that 10th you know, back up in on a tenth location. Um, so all you need to do is safeguard that twenty-digit code, which the device will will give you, which acts as the password for for that SD card. Uh, but yeah, you can litter these all over the place. And the beauty with the the these encrypted backups is that let's say you do put one at your friend's house, um, that SD card is useless to them. Uh, it's mm. encrypted by really strong encryption, and unless they've got that twenty-digit code. Um, it's absolutely useless to them. So they can't do anything with it. So you've got like secure sort of offsite storage of your Bitcoin as a, as a, a different form of backup on a micro SD card, which is a pretty inanimate object at this stage. You know, they're all over the place. Um, and it's absolutely useless without that 20 digit code, which you can keep wherever you want. You can write it on paper in your safe. You can store it in a password manager. Just depends on your technical ability and, you know, what you've got available to you. But, um, is it, are encrypted backups and Seth written a fantastic blog post about this on our blog? on foundationdevices.com um, going around the ins and outs of it. But yeah, really underrated um, tool that Passport offers uh, is the encrypted backups. Yeah, one of the other things I love with the encrypted backups too is just that a micro SD card and an encrypted zip file are not Bitcoin specific in any way. So like if someone is, they know that you own Bitcoin and they're coming to your house to try to steal your Bitcoin, if they find a micro SD card lying on your desk, 
they're not going to assume that that's Bitcoin related. And then even if they do take it, like you mentioned, it's an encrypted backup. They would need the 20-digit code as well. So there's a, there's a lot of extra protections that, again, you can kind of hide in the crowd by just being a regular micro SD card with a, a regular encrypted file on it. It doesn't scream, this is a Bitcoin wallet, like 24 words written on a piece of paper do or something like that these days. Yeah, I, I like that option for travel, a micro SD card, just because it just looks like, oh, it's just for videos and photos while you're traveling. That, that, that to me is my preferred option if I'm traveling is, yeah, that backup for, um, to, to take that, to take that option with you. So that's, yeah. Like I said, I do like the micro SD card, especially from a new perspective, because to them, the stress of writing 20 seed phrases down, keeping the new work in, that's for a new, that's a pretty big hurdle. But the fact that, okay, it's there, it's physical. That really helps them with that. Yeah. And again, going back to our design intentions, um, if you take the, the simple flow when you first boot passport up, uh, we don't even show you the, the 20, your 24 seed words. It's not part of the default onboarding flow. You'll make an encrypted backup. You'll write down the 20 digit, digit code that is the password to this encrypted backup. Um, and that it's only thereafter once you've used the device that you'll go into the settings and you can see your 24 uh, seed words. Um, if you uh, go back to the start and you opt for the manual setup, which is geared more towards um, advanced users, that's when you'll have a, a, as part of the onboarding flow, your 24 digit seed, sorry, 24 uh, word seed uh, to, and you'll be prompted to write that down. So we've got flows, uh, onboarding flows that cater to both types of user. Yeah, I played with both and I, I've got to admit they're, they're quite simple and easy to use and use the on, Envoy app as well. And I really like the simplicity of the Envoy app, guys. That's, yeah, really, 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 really clean. Cool. Um, I think uh, we've taken up enough of your time, guys. Uh, is there any questions that we should be asking you or how about you guys do a final plug? Someone's sort of listening to this. They're like, I got my Bitcoins on Binance. They're safe as houses, um, which is an ironic statement in this day and age. Uh, what should they do? How do they get a foundation? Feel free to plug yourself. Yeah, I think, I mean, quite simply, they can just go to foundationdevices.com and, and learn more about what we're building and easily buy passport there. Um, but the, the biggest thing is definitely get those keys off an exchange ASAP, mm-hmm. uh, and, and we'll help you with that. I think another thing that we, we didn't mention at all today is that we have a concierge service that you can buy either when you buy passport or afterwards at any time. Uh, and that gives you an hour with a Bitcoin expert to walk you through step-by-step how to set up Passport, how to actually use it with either Envoy or your favorite Bitcoin wallet. Um, and really gives even extra peace of mind uh, to anyone, really. So I think that's a, another really useful tool to make that process easier because it can be very daunting. And I mean, like I was at Pacific Bitcoin last year talking to uh, hundreds and hundreds of people and a large percentage of them said that they still had funds and that was during the FTX collapse. They still had funds on FTX and this was before you couldn't withdraw. So they could still get their funds off. And many of them still said, I have funds on there, but I'm just worried that if I do it myself, I'm going to screw something up and lose them. Uh, And that's not where we want people to be. And again, Mm -hmm. that's why we're trying to build things that are very approachable, very easy to use. And then if you need that extra guidance, you need that extra peace of mind will help you along the process as well with the the concierge service. So something where we want to see everyone holding their own keys. Uh, We don't want to see exchanges holding a single Bitcoin in the future. 
Yeah, great points from Seth there around self-custody. Um, also would say, yeah, if you want to sort of um, learn or see how Passport works, you know, in real life, um, you can head to our YouTube channel if you just search for Foundation Devices or download our Envoy app to your phone. All of the uh, videos are all within the uh, Learn tab on there. You can watch those directly on your phone and just see how Passport works with, you know, you can see how to set Passport up. Um, I think Faris touched on the, the onboarding guide that I filmed earlier. Um, you can go from that right the way up to all of the advanced videos where we can, you know, you're verifying the firmware on the device or you're using CoinJoin. Uh, we've got videos for all types of users to, to see how it works. So um, if you're listening to this and you're sounding interested, yeah, definitely check those videos out. Um, outside of that, yeah, just head to foundationdevices.com and you'll be able to see, um, you know, what Passport looks like and how Envoy shapes up on your phone. Um, you can keep your eyes peeled on that for what we've got planned for, you know, in the future as well. Oh, thank you very much, guys. Cool. And yeah, this was for me personally, just a, a really fun tool to to play with and get to know. And I'm, I'm going to do some more about it. So um, yeah, thank you for sending us through the passport. And it's been a real pleasure chatting with you guys. And yeah, hope we're very keen to have you back on. And I'm, I'm presuming Foundation will have some more stuff down the line that uh, you guys will be launching. So I'd love to have you back on. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. And yeah, very thanks, quickly. Guys, been a pleasure. Seth, uh, I've been waiting for another episode of Opt Out. I, I remember <laughs> listening to you and Matt O'Dell talk about Fetty Mints a while ago. Are you, are you still are you still podcasting? I am. I am. I actually just released an episode last week for the first time in uh, in many months. Oh wow! So finally okay. getting back into right. the, the swing of things with with Opt Out. Um, so so look for more there. It definitely won't be as consistent as it previously was. Um, but I'll be be dropping episodes. Another one I'm scheduling right now to to talk about Bitcoin peer to peer layer privacy as well. So yeah, looking forward to more episodes there. Awesome. I'll link that in the show notes for anyone who's interested in deep diving into privacy. Thanks. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks again, guys, for coming on the show. And uh, we look forward to maybe chatting to you guys again in another six months or a year. Usually to our guests, we don't say a time, we say a price. So we'll chat to you at 100,000, whenever that is. That's Bitcoin, not Monero. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. See you soon, guys. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for watching or listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, and share so we can spread this educational content to others like yourself. Visit bitcoinbasics.help. Disclaimer. Any content provided by CoinCompass is for educational and informational purposes only and is not investment, legal, tax, or any other professional advice. A qualified professional should be consulted before making any financial decisions. CoinCompass will at times recommend certain products, services, and technologies, but these are opinions based upon our own or podcast guests' experience and not endorsements. We take no liability for out-of-date or inaccurate information, software bugs, manufacturing errors, technology misuse, or issues involving third parties. Visit coincompass.com for more information and please contact us.